talking about something that is going to take the wind out of the sails of the global economy, not for weeks, not for months, but probably until we get a vaccine in the summer or fall of next year. Welcome to the Pen and Sword podcast from Stratfor. I'm Fred Burton. Today I'm talking with Peter Zion, a geopolitical strategist and the author of the new book, Disunited Nations, The Scramble for Power in an Ungoverned World. Peter, welcome. Hey, Fred. It's good to be back. Peter, uh, we miss you, my friend. <laughs> for people who don't know, I'm a Stratfor alum from about 10 years ago. Yeah, and... Uh, Clearly one of, one of the most brilliant analysts I've ever been uh, fortunate to have worked with, Peter. We do miss you. Ah, shucks. Thanks, Fred. Let's talk a little bit about your new book, Disunited Nations. Sure. So back from my time at Stratford since, I've uh, been working from the general idea that uh, the global system is based on a degree of trust. Whether you're in global energy or finance or manufacturing, you have to trust that the system is going to be there the next day. Otherwise, deliveries won't happen, power won't come on, manufacturing supply chains fall apart. Well, this isn't how the world has normally worked historically. In the world before World War II, we were imperial, and everybody had their own navy to basically shoot at other people and make sure that they got what they needed themselves. Uh, with World War II, that system came to an unceremonious end, and it left the Americans as the last men standing trying to figure out what's next. And when we looked east from Western Germany, we didn't like what we saw. I mean, the this, this Stalinist Soviet war machine was terrifying. And we knew there was no way that the United States could stand up to the Soviets in Europe without a lot of help. So the trick was how do you convince the Europeans who have an epic poem of mutual grievances to stand shoulder to shoulder in front of you and face down the Soviets with you? And so we bribed them. We basically created this global order where the U.S. Navy would make global commerce safe for everyone, even if you didn't have a single naval vessel. And you could go out and buy any commodity, bring it home, metabolize it into a finished good, and then export it for hard currency, probably to the American market. We basically paid to make this alliance that we now consider the global order. Well, we lost need for that back in 1992 when the Soviet Union collapsed. But we kind of took a vacation from international security and for four presidents in a row really didn't update the system. So the U.S. kept paying for the system for everyone else but not really gaining any benefit because the whole idea was we pay you to be on our side. There was no economic upside to the United States for this. And now, 30 years on, Americans have completely lost interest. So the book is about how we got to where we are in the very first chapter. And after that, it's all about how it all falls apart and who starts to pick up pieces of the international system when there is no international system. So it's about the countries that we think of as the countries of the future and showing why they're really going to collapse and how these countries that we think of as second and even third rate places actually are going to rise to dominate the human condition. Peter, you have quite the fan club. Uh, I have a good friend over at Microsoft by the name of Jeffrey Snover, and he wanted me to ask you this question. He read your book, and he says, what are the geopolitical ramifications of the shift away towards an economy where digital is the major component? Well, <laughs> I, I hate to um, 
tell him this, especially if he's at Microsoft, but that's really not going to happen. It's not that the digital system and digitization is not becoming more and more important. It's not that it's not insinuating itself into every part of every economic sector. That's definitely happening. But a couple things to keep in mind. Number one, digital infrastructure is still infrastructure. It still requires physical interconnections among countries. And pretty much all of the world's data goes through a series of subsea cables. Now, when the Twitter revolution happened in Egypt, the Egyptian military simply cut the two cables that took data in and out of the country and were easily able to crush and take over. The Russians then sent a team down to Egypt to say, hey, 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 that was really cool. How did you do that? So the Egyptians showed them how, and the Russians now have kill switches on the four cables that come in and out of their country. The Chinese have built the digital firewall and have put similar killed cables on all of their cables. And if we ever get to the point where there's like a real conflict, Look, you can guarantee that even the United States will cut all its cables on day one or two. <laughs> so we're moving away from a global digital infrastructure and into a more national system. There will be kind of regional blocks. I think the Western Hemisphere writ large will be more or less in one piece. But without the European Union, the European system is probably going to crack apart. And then, of course, all the other major powers are going to have their own. doesn't mean there's not a place for digital, but you have to keep it in perspective. The second thing to keep about digital in specific and tech in general is it's not cheap. It's one of the most expensive things that we've learned how to do, especially when it comes to development and application. Well, we're in the, we're deep, we're well past the point of no return in a global demographic inversion. And most of the developed world will be moving into mass retirement this decade. And the Chinese are already on average older than Americans. When you're in your 40s and your 50s and your early 60s, you generate a lot of capital. And we've had this huge bulge globally in that age demographic for the last 15 years. That is in part what has allowed the technological revolution, the digital revolution to happen. That ends this decade. And if we're dealing in a world that is more fractured and doesn't have even a fraction of the capital that we have right now, I'm sorry, but the pace of this is going to slow down considerably. But the country where it will slow the most slowly, where we'll have the most time to adapt, is the United States. Because here, our baby boomer generation actually had kids. So say what you will about the millennials. They, you may think that they're lazy. They don't get up till 2 p.m. or what have you. They <laughs> exist. And as they grow up, and I define that in the loosest possible terms, they are following the patterns of the generations who have come before. They are saving as they get older. That is the capital that drives technology. At least here, we have the millennials. They don't exist in places like Canada or Germany or Japan or Korea or Thailand or Italy. We'll get right back to Peter Zion in a moment. I'm cutting in here to speak to you, our podcast listener. Never before has the world faced what it's facing now. I worked in counterterrorism for many years. I've been in the intelligence forecasting and security for many more. I have to know what's happening before it happens. So I read Stratfor Worldview every day. I read it to understand what's going on, why it matters, and what's going to happen next. That's the critical thing. What happens next? Stratfor Worldview delivers intelligence, and with everything going on right now, it's time for intelligence. I encourage you to subscribe today. Visit worldview.stratfor.com slash podcast offer. There is a special offer for podcast listeners. Thanks. 
Well, thank you for answering Jeffrey's question. I know he's going to enjoy that one. I <laughs> I would be remiss for not asking you about your thoughts on the coronavirus. I mean, I was alive when Kennedy was assassinated, and I've certainly lived through a, enough disasters since then. Where do you see this going, Peter? And, and how come the world was so unprepared for this? There are a lot of ways to answer that question. So let me just kind of break it into three general pieces. Uh, first of all, there, there's something to be said for the general breakdown in international cooperation and early warning systems that have happened in the United States and around the world where we could have done better. That, that's fair. Uh, but keep in mind that the Chinese sat on all their data. They're still not sharing all of their data. So the first time – the first country outside of China that really had an experience – was Korea, and that was basically at a megachurch. It was a cluster study, yes, but not an epidemic. The second one was in Iran, a country that no one has great relationships with and maybe doesn't isn't the best at data collection. The third country is Italy. It overwhelmed their system, and so all their testing happens at the hospital level. And all these three cases, that was all in less than a month. And right. then the next set is Spain, France, Germany, and the United States. So from the point that – we got coronavirus, the word coronavirus, on the front page of any major newspaper. It's only been two months. That gives you an idea of just how communicable this thing is. And that's the key thing. It's communicable. Uh, because of the speed of that, it was very difficult to have any sort of meaningful response. Second, we haven't had a meaningful response in part because the Trump administration has decided – from day one, that it doesn't like government. So there are still thousands of positions that are unfilled throughout the federal bureaucracy, including positions that would deal with issues like this or deal with foreign cooperation on issues like this. There just aren't senior staff there to make calls, uh, and that has absolutely hampered everything that we've been doing. And then the third issue is where we're going. Because this is three times as communicable as the flu, because about a fifth of the people who contract the illness have to be in hospital for at least a little bit, we're talking about something that is going to take the, the wind out of the sails of the global economy, not for weeks, uh, not for months, but probably until we get a vaccine. That will probably be in the summer or fall of next year. I don't want to leave you all depressed. There is uh, a lot of new th breakthroughs that we've had in genetics in the last few years. They're being applied to one strain of this vaccine effort, which is already two, three months ahead of schedule. So it is theoretically possible we'll have a working vaccine by this fall, probably not for everybody, maybe for healthcare or workers, but that would still break the back of this. Uh, but that means everything's offline. The only way that you can prevent mass infections is to go into lockdown. For the industrialized world, that brings a lot of things to the halt. To the developed world where social distancing is not possible, you're talking mass deaths, mass dislocations, and completely excising them from the global economy. Now, my position is because of demographics and geopolitics. This was going to be the last decade of the global order. It was all going to break down. We were going to go back to a more regional system with individual countries kind of having their own little spheres of influence. Coronavirus has sped that up. Because if this only lasts a year, by the time that this is over, we're going to be so close to the gross twilight of the baby boomer generation that there won't be time to rebuild afterwards before they vanish from the workforce and vanish as capital providers. Uh, you could argue that some parts of Europe are there already. 
And if you take the developing world offline and break all the supply chain systems, then everybody has to rebuild their manufacturing systems locally out of necessity. We're not going to go back to the old system. So coronavirus has probably taken five years off the clock of how long it would take the global system to break down. 2020, this may well be the year. Wow. Well, on that note, Peter, thank you for being on the Stratfor Pen and Sword podcast. My pleasure. Peter Zion is the author of Disunited Nations, The Scramble for Power in an Ungoverned World. In these times, everyone needs a trusted source to rely on. Stratfor is here to help. You can check out all of Stratfor's Pen and Sword podcasts at worldview.stratfor.com. While you're there, consider subscribing. There's a special offer for podcast listeners. I'm Fred Burton, and thanks for listening.